0: Today's show is made possible with support from Rourke. Rourke makes travel-tailored clothing and gear, artifacts of adventure. Each season, Rourke creates a collection of purpose-built gear with styling details fit to accommodate needs from the trail to an evening out durable quality and comfort is the guiding light with a commitment to sustainable fabrics and fair trade partners throughout each collection learn more at Rourke.com and find a retailer near you so that you can appreciate the feel and the fit in person or simply purchase on Rourke.com confidently knowing that you have free 30-day returns and exchanges and if you do that, we'll save you 15% with our promo code SPLENDOR15. 15. SPLENDOR15 15 on Rourke.com. The new winter line just dropped, so you can do some Christmas shopping and save 15% with SPLENDOR15. There is something for everyone on your gift list at Rourke.com. RealWaterSports.com is one of the nation's premier surfboard retailers, They're also actually renowned for their kiteboarding selection, their foil selection, and their lessons and camps for all of those things. Scott Bass and I were there in July to do a four-day foiling camp, and it was obvious how they've earned the reputation as the best. They are gear experts with a focus on customer service And it's really as simple as that. Everything else falls in line after that. The owners and much of the crew are former professional athletes in their given discipline, so they know the gear as good as anyone else and they can guide you into precisely what will work best for you. They stock all of the accessories that you might need for whatever equipment that you're buying And they've also figured out how to ship it around the world inexpensively. They have a live chat on their website. They have a phone number listed on the header and the footer of every page of their website. So they make it simple for you to get that first class customer service no matter where you are in the world. So go peruse their 1500 surfboard inventory at realwatersports.com and enjoy. (music) Stewart Surfboards has been omnipresent in Southern California since my youth. Founded in 1978 and based out of the same brick-and-mortar location since the mid-80s, the surf shop and the brand have become a landmark in San Clemente, and also held landmark status in surfer and surfing magazines with their full-page advertisements for nearly two decades. The boards were easily identifiable by the large center chest Stewart script logo and fabulous airbrush sprays. The aesthetic also became synonymous with the high performance longboard era, which Stewart's team riders dominated. And just in those two paragraphs, I've perhaps committed the same disservice that most people do when trying to summarize Bill Stewart and that is to let his surfboard legacy overshadow his many other talents and accomplishments. His various inventions, his musical prowess, his foray into snowboard manufacturing, and his incredible multimedia fine art paintings and murals of which he's still being commissioned for today. So we'll cover much of that in this week and next as this is part one of two, But we'll enter this conversation today discussing Bill's biggest pet peeve regarding customers coming in to order aboard. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy my conversation with the venerable Bill Stewart.
1: I was super frustrated with all these customers would come in and they don't know a single thing about a surfboard and they would use the terminology. Hey Bill, what's the volume of this board? And I'd go, why do you care? And and he goes, well, you know, I like this many liters, and I don't even know the leaders numbers. I don't. And the reason I don't is because I look at a person and I can tell you what your waist size is, mm. the inseam on your pants, how t- based on how tall you are. Then I can talk to you about, how much you weigh, where you surf, what are you trying to do on a wave? And I'll pinpoint a board and give that board to you and you'll be as happy as you could be. Now, a lot of people try to be their own brain surgeon. That's the problem. They think they know more than they do about designs, you know, flex patterns, glass jobs. They they don't know all that stuff. They don't need to, that's my job. Mm. So this guy walks in and he hit, I was in one of my moods, (laughs) which people know about. And I'm very quick-witted with weird stuff. And this guy says, "Hey, Bill, what about the volume in this board here?" And I go, "What's the volume of your wife?" <laughs> he goes, "What?" And I said, "Yeah, what's the volume of your wife?" I go, "Let's talk about that. Let's say, you're, let's say she's, uh, let's say she's 150 pounds. Is she six three, or is she five three? Same volume." Exactly the same. Me and my son-in-law, Eric Linus, we were talking about taking a bunch of guys' heads and line them up behind a table so you could only see their face. And then they're all the same volume. Right Now, I want a girl to walk up and say, hey, what's the size of a man you're looking for? What's the volume you like? And then have them pick, and then the guy stands up, right? right. <laughs> and so he, he, here's the funny thing about that. And where volume... Volume is in a gallon of milk. When you buy a gallon of milk, you get a gallon of milk. What do you do with milk? You drink it. You don't ride it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to float. It doesn't have to paddle good. It doesn't dig rails or anything. You drink it. You pour it down your throat. That That is why you buy a gallon of milk. But when you buy a surfboard, it's based on on Rocker and V and concaves, how many fins, what are the placement, it's complicated, super complicated so when you walk in and you state a word to, about volume on a board that you've never even ridden yeah. and you don't know anything about rocker it, it doesn't apply now when Kelly Slater, I like the terminology scaling up your surfboard, in other words let's say you want to stay with a 510 and you said, God I wish it had a little more planing surface for slower waves, add width you don't scale up the whole board mathematically, length, width, and thickness all at once. That's increasing the overall volume is like just blowing it up. Mm. That's a bad idea. Yeah. What you want to do is increase width to it. How much? How much stability do you want? How much flotation do you want? And that's an opinionated thing. A lot of this stuff is Kelly Slater's surfboards don't ride worth a crap for a lot of people because they're not qualified to ride a board that small, that sensitive, and and of that level Mm -hmm. so is it a good board not for fat albert it's not good for that guy so the the word volume kind of went cuckoo when i did the video about it and i was super sarcastic and it was on by the way it was filmed on april fool's day so it was a little tongue-in-cheek which people didn't understand and one guy wrote in and said he goes Mr. Stewart, I don't think you understand the purpose of the word volume and what it means to a surfer and da-da-da-da-da. And the next comment was, hey, buddy, if you need more volume, why don't you get yourself a a life jacket? (laughs) 100%. (laughs) So how funny is that? So Kelly Slater, when he goes in and you take the greatest surfers in the world that have a special board that they really like and they want to scale it up, that's when the word volume comes in i guess but you can't walk to every single surf shop and go oh i want this many liters and the guy pulls a board out so what I, I did a video about i took two pieces of clay and i said let's pretend these two pieces of clay are uh, 50 liters let's just make a number up okay so i i sculpted one into a an ugly little twin fin looking fish tail and i shaped the other one into a gun. Okay, that's A and Z, okay? You're talking about a big wave board and a small wave board with the exact same volume. Mm. There's no, the volume doesn't work.
0: No, I agree with you. Um, I had a listener, well, I grew up in an era where there was no such thing as volume, you know? It was before the machines and stuff, so nobody tracked that number or that metric. Uh, But a lot of people who have started surfing in the last 10 years, that is one of the metrics that they are familiar with just like the height and the width and the thickness. And then a listener reached out and he's like, well, here's the deal. Here's why I like knowing the volume number is because I know what works for me in the shortboard. And so then if I get a fish, I want to have kind of a a point that I can tie it to because I think that would also work for me. And I'm thinking to myself, no, like a fish shouldn't have the same amount of volume as your shortboard. You're actually proving my point in that you're misunderstanding it entirely.
1: That's the problem.
0: Once you have a different concert of variables, then forget about the, vo- the volume is irrelevant at that point. You know,
1: they're two different boards. Okay. And one's, one's an all round performance board in good surf. And a lot of people ride a fish on slope your faced waves, trying to d- connect the dots, flatter rocker, More speed. A lot of times they're twin fins. They they draw really. They draw. They're fast, but you get them in a heavy wave, and twin fins are kind of hard to ride. They get skippy. Mm -hmm. Water gets harder as you go faster. I water ski barefooted for years. Okay, you. There's a certain speed you have to go to ski barefooted. That's planing efficiency. I grew up on a lake in Florida, and water skied barefooted when I was 13 years old, behind a 40 horsepower motor, which people would say that's impossible. It would be if I wasn't the smallest kid in the school mm. and weighed 78 pounds and my brother was the only one in the boat. We took a 9'2 Hobie surfboard and I drug my legs on the side of it and, and it started planing and just planing to my feet. The pressure on my feet made the board slide out from under my butt and I was up and riding. Amazing. School was sound. that
0: the plan? Yes. Is that how you're planning yeah, to get up? Yeah, that was my okay.
1: idea. I thought I could do this. Wow. And no one else could do it behind a 40 horse. My brother Dave, who was a phenomenal water skier, Mr. Muscle Man, he was too heavy. Mm. It, the boat only went 32 miles an hour, and then the drag of your feet. Yeah. By the way, I got a serious enema from the spray on your feet going up your shorts. It was a little gnarly.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs> but back to the surfboard thing and tying this to planing efficiency and what you're trying to do, the rules change as you go fast. That's why they put lead in a, in a tow end board. Yeah, They put a bunch of lead in there. Why do they do that? I mean, you take Laird Ham- Hamilton and you take Jerry Lopez. Jerry's 135 pounds. What's Laird? 220 or something? He's yeah. a beast. Yet they both put lead in a surfboard. Why? Because the board bounces. It slaps. A wave hits and it catches air. I fish all the time. You, you go out on a big boat and it's heavy. It displaces the water and a light boat skips over the top. So... Back to this whole volume thing, uh, uh, I got to tell you, a bunch of retailers called me up and said, "Thank you so much." Yeah, because they felt I bought everybody a cup of shut up about the volume thing. Good, and and it got it got tiring of telling the numbers, posting the numbers, right. and and people with no understanding of what they're asking doesn't make any sense. Length, width, thickness. I mean, I know what <laughs> I can ride, and I can put it under my arm and hold it and go. This is mine. Yeah, once you. <clears throat> go through a lot of boards. If you don't go through a lot of boards to get to that stage, you better go to a surf shop who really knows what they're talking about. At my shop, I have Jeff Kramer, a world-class surfer. And Big Surf, I mean, he's phenomenal. Look in the old magazines. He's got the greatest photos I've ever seen of people on longboards doing rat. He was, see that picture over there, the big air? That's Jeff Kramer, okay? So when... When you see that kind of a move on a longboard, that's a, a guy that really can surf. He's standing in my surf shop right now, and you get to talk to him. Yeah. It's a huge benefit. Totally. It ain't Costco. No. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, now would be a great time to go back to the beginning. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Where'd you grow up?
1: Well, uh, actually, born in Bowling Green, Kentucky, which was really a fun thing to put on my contest when they said, you know, you had to write a bio about yourself. I always claimed that I was Kentucky's greatest surfer. And I still am, as if you anybody wanna come and prove me wrong, uh, let's meet down at the beach, cause I'm, I'm holding the title for about, I don't know, 55 years now, 60 years?
0: Maybe Kentucky's only. Well, that maybe I have to bring that up. That's a buzzkill, man. (laughs) I'm going to go and birth a child in Kentucky just to contest for this title.
1: Yeah. So my, my life is like the the movie North Shore, you know, Rick Kane. Yeah. And so when I was two years old, we moved to Florida, South Florida, where the surf is not very good. And we drove up the coast every, all the time to go surfing. But uh, yeah, there was a, I, I got taken out of school by a, my best friend's dad who wore madras pants and he was a bookie on the beach and he wove uh, palm tree hats, right? For a living, never paid taxes. So he snuck us out of school one day. We went down to the beach and he had some old beat up long boards. And that's where I stood up on my first wave. And soon the first one I laid down, the second one I stood up, I went, oh, I like this, mm. right? There's the addiction, you know?
0: Um, do you know what kind of boards they were?
1: No, they, one was cut. The whole nose was broken off and just rounded off, and fiberglass over it. Okay, they were junk. They okay. were like pop-out Kioki kind of things. Gotcha. Just pieces of junk.
0: What year would this have been?
1: Uh, Nineteen sixty-three. Okay, I would say.
0: Um, just out of curiosity, what did your parents do for work?
1: Yeah, my, my my mom and dad were awesome parents, and my mom had three boys before she was twenty-one years old. Wow. So that's Kentucky style, get her done kind of thing. Yeah. So so when you, when you say that to people, and she's like five foot tall. You know, she's a tiny little person. And she was ferocious, not, not somebody you disrespect. And I, she apologized when she was like in her 80s for being too rough on us boys. And I said, do not ever apologize for that. I said, if you would have allowed us to do what we wanted, we would have steamrolled you. I said, luckily, you had that leather belt. And we knew right and wrong. She made sure and i told my son when he was a little kid i said listen there's two ways to get information into your mind i can do it verbally through your ears into your brain or i can go through your butt you choose how you want to get the information yeah so nowadays ooh spankings oh that's horrible well, i disagree
0: what do you think was behind your mom in her 80s feeling that way and saying that
1: she, well she was gnarly she was i was, I was when she died, I was still scared of her. Really? <laughs> because, hey, she would light you up. She you, you didn't. She was a loving, caring, made breakfast every day for us, eggs, bacon, and toast, the whole bit, right? Doing laundry by hand, hanging it up at night, walking to... She worked at Winn-Dixie Grocery Store and walked a mile to uh, work and then carried the groceries back for four kids. So I had two older brothers and a younger sister, and for them... To watch my mom work that hard, she was not somebody you could disrespect. And then there's my dad, the Kentucky boxer from the military, who was six foot one, redneck. Mm. That's another guy. You don't really want to mess with that guy. And when you have parents that uh, are hardworking and loving and always there for you, you feel safe. You always feel you're always going to get a meal. You got a roof over your head. And the most important thing, you knew you were absolutely loved. That's, you can't replace that. That's not replaceable. So when you think about it, so my, my dad, he was uh, in the newspaper business. He walked into the newspaper and was a typesetter. And when he c- retired, he was vice president of the company. So it, that's pretty impressive. Fair. My mom went to work after when dixie went to work for a bank. And then she ended up being vice president of the bank. Then she retired <laughs> from that and became a uh, registered nurse. So my parents were motivated, hardworking, smart, and just, and funny. My God, they were funny. So that whole, having cool parents like that, as you have a young child now, it's your turn. Yeah. Pay it forward. Yeah. But, and the discipline thing is up to you.
0: Yeah. Um, I fully agree with you, by the way, when you say that the one thing that's kind of irreplaceable and the most important is them knowing that they're unconditionally loved. Yeah. So any of the discipline that comes from the side or anywhere else, as long as they know that at the core, the love is there, then they can process what all of that means and why they're receiving the discipline or whatever
1: else. Well, there's a thing called parenting or a pal. Yeah. You know about that. Yeah. The parenting thing is the discipline part of it. And, and you're not going to back down off of the parenting part. You are the parent. You're not their pal. When you're their pal, they can okay, bro. Let me yeah. let me give you this. Oh yeah, you let the bedroom on fire, but you know, oh well, we'll get a new right bed for you. Oh, you crashed the car three times. We'll get you a new car. That's stupid.
0: Totally. But the unconditional love component, if it's not there,
1: that's horrible.
0: Then there the child is always going to be searching for a version of that and trying to fill that void probably indefinitely, probably for the rest of their life, you know, so it's irreplaceable.
1: They're actually damaged from that.
0: Yeah. It's the one core component that no matter how else a child is raised or where in the world, in Mm -hmm. what culture they're raised in, I feel like that's the essential.
1: So that ties into Florida. So when I was in Florida, um, I started surfing and that whole bit, Then the Vietnam War showed up. My brother went to Vietnam and then the lottery came out with the big basket for your life or whether you live and die, go to Vietnam. So I got really long hair. I'm kind of a hippie dude. I wasn't a big weed smoker or nothing, but it was cool. Look surfer, you know, blonde hair, <laughs> the whole bit. Um, yeah. I was, I was kind of scared to death about the whole war thing. And as soon as I drew my number 327, I went, okay, I'm leaving Florida because a lot of my friends were moving uh, weed and stuff back then, and uh, it got worse as as you know. So I went down. I drove down to Dania Beach and said, "Hey, all my buddies were hanging out down there. It's always flat." So I said, "Who wants to go to California?" I'm going tomorrow, and this kid raises his hand. He goes, "I'll go." And I, his name's Andy Christopher, and uh, I said, "Really?" I said, "I said, okay, you can go if you want." And I said. Uh, aren't you in high school? He goes, yeah, I'll quit. <laughs> <laughs> just like that. And I, I said, listen, I don't have a problem with you quitting high school, but if you're going go to go to California with me, we got to square this up with your parents. Drive to his parents' house. Oh, you boys have a good time. Did I'm they like, think
0: he was just going on vacation? No. They knew he was going yeah, permanently. He, he, yeah. Oh my gosh. So he quit school. He jumps in my 1963
1: Ford van, three on the tree, Right and it had no windows carpet in the back where you just sleep in the back and and it had mag wheels with wood bumpers and we both had really long hair we're driving across the united states to to come to california and on the way he goes you know today is my birthday and i went really? well i'll buy you breakfast and he goes cool and i go by the way what birthday is this and he goes i'm turning 16 oh my god i went Oh, my God. I'm like a kidnapper. Yeah. You got the van and everything. (laughs) How funny is that? Unbelievable.
0: I want to interview his parents.
1: I know. What were they thinking? They're idiots. They're not. Well, his dad levitated. He had the ability to uh, go out of his mind and levitate over the neighborhood. He had that skill.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: Gotcha. (laughs) Supposedly. Gotcha. Potentially. So... Yeah, and his mom was as goofy as could be, and I just kind of went, "Wow, that's the you know, for, to let your 15 year old son jump in a van and head to the West Coast with long haired hippie freak." he was like that too.
0: Uh, so where where is he today?
1: <laughs> he is an organic farmer in North Carolina. Okay. He's so we head across the United States and we end up in Encinitas, and I was on lived on Third Street at Swami's. And he knew somebody there, and I don't, I don't know how... He, the, the guy worked at VG Donut Shop. I
0: don't know. Still there?
1: Right? It is, huh? Yeah. <laughs> he was the donut guy. So we ate a lot of donuts back then because we were starving. But, uh, yeah, it was pretty awesome. So I met this lady next door who was a 26-year-old school teacher, and I ended up moving in with her, and he ended up going back to Florida. Okay. And he became a Hare Krishna, gave all his possessions away, and he, he, he was... Just I never heard from him again for 35 years. Wow. Never forty years. Never and he showed up at my shop and I had always told the story to my employees and they were blown away by it. And I they go, Hey man, Raymond Christopher's here. And I went, What? And get him on the phone, and he goes, Hey, this is Raymond. I go, dude, where have you been? <laughs> so so uh, I said, hey, come over to my house. So he comes over and he's just the same guy. Really a, guy, a good, a really good guy.
0: Okay, good. So yeah. everything's worked out for him. Yeah. Did he ever learn how to levitate like his dad?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I should have asked him that. I, I have to call him up.
0: Of all the things that the, the dad could pass down to a son. Yeah. I Please. That's that, one I would like to learn. I'd like
1: to learn that trick. Yeah. So I think when you levitate, I don't think you're conscious. I think it's when you're underground that the, mm, you, you levitate. In that, right?
0: Maybe. Don't know. <laughs> Can't speak from experience. Um, I'm curious, why. what was your vision of California when you left Florida? Why were you moving, and how'd you end up? Why'd you pick Encinitas?
1: One word. Waves. Waves. I knew where I was raised and what I loved wasn't there. I loved to surf. Well, in Miami, in Hollywood, where I grew up, way south Florida. Now, Central, we drove, my first car I bought cost $30. It was a 1963 uh, Chevy, and the the paint on it was yellow, and it was so chalky, you couldn't wash it. It was just wow. powder on the yeah. outside of it. I paid 30 bucks for it, and the rear end was blown out. That's why I'm a pretty good mechanic now, because... We had to fix our cars back then if you wanted to drive them. And by the way, I came from a house that was uh, 900 square feet and there was six people with one and a half bathrooms. That's not wealthy, okay? That's not the Taj Mahal on the beach. So it's a big difference when you you leave a place that your friends have become drug addicts. The van that I bought from my friend Mike Weedlick uh, he committed suicide, and he was strung out on heroin. So when you live a life like that and you see really bad things, I just wanted out. I was done. I was like, okay, I need a new view here. Yeah. And I was just wanted to ride waves. So when I got there, I surfed every day. Mm-hmm. I, I surfed. I caught more waves than was fair. I mean, because <laughs> I was I weighed nothing and I could paddle really fast. And and I, if you notice, all Floridians have a compulsive disorder for wave catching totally don't they yeah it's because you're so california people grow up here they're spoiled they don't understand what it's like to not have what they have so if it's not three to four feet perfect glass on a point break i'm not going to paddle out the floridian guy it's two to one to two foot onshore wind chop raining they're out there surfing Mm -hmm. why do you think kelly slater's kelly slater Lisa Anderson. Now, I was a kook from Florida when I showed up in San Clemente. They told me, "Gator, go home," and blah blah blah. And it was, and uh, but I surfed good. So when you're a good surfer, you can say what you want on the beach, but when you're in the water, you can back it up.
0: Yeah, it's and the it, ultimate meritocracy.
1: Um, that's a pretty big word. I'll have to look that up. I'll
0: will text it to you later with the <laughs> definition too. Um. <laughs> So what was your plan to earn money? And how old were you?
1: I was 19. Okay. Right out of high school. And uh, I didn't, when I first went to Encinitas, I saved, I worked construction. I built mausoleums, crypts for dead people. Okay.
0: This, This feels like a made up part of the story.
1: I know. My whole life is like this. I was a carny. I traveled with carnivals. Okay. In Florida? No, that was in Ionia, Michigan. I had a girlfriend that w- when I was 17 years old. The, that summer, they said, "Hey, uh, my dad owns a fudge making company for carnivals," and I went. She goes, "Do you want to do that? Try, go with my brother and go up?" And I went, "Okay." And uh, they, <laughs> so we drive this truck up there, and it's got these big copper vats, you know. And by the way. When you're young, fudge tastes really good because it's the most disgusting stuff you can possibly eat. It's it's just pure sugar and butter and chocolate and just awful.
0: Just so, reduced, reduced, reduced. Yeah, yeah, and
1: we boil it down and we zig in. Then you pour it and you chop it in little squares and you put it in a one-pound box, right? So I'm standing there and I look up and <laughs> here comes this girl at 10 o'clock in the morning. We just opened And she was five feet by five feet. And she was solid 500, 600 pounds, waddling towards the counter. And I went, oh, God, please don't come here. Don't come here. And she threw her arms on the table like throwing two big dead fish. They literally made a slapping noise when they hit the counter. And she goes, give me two pounds of fudge. I felt like I was tying off a heroin addict and shooting the needle in their arm. That's how bad it felt. And I gave her the box, and she waddled away, tossing those things one after another. And I was like, oh, my God. Wow. So being a building mausoleum, by the way, I chiseled my name in a crib. Uh, my name is Inland. That you had to you crawl, just, crawl inside of them. and They were concrete, 16 feet deep, 3 feet by 3 feet for double caskets. And so you had to crawl in there and knock all the – bracing and pull all that stuff out. They're called dogs and and there's cross braces and and forms and you'd oil the forms, carry them on your fingertips. Now this was in 95 degree weather with 90% humidity in Florida doing this stuff. It was hard work. Yeah. So your question about, okay, what are you gonna do when you get to here, I just surfed. And then I went back and went back to mausoleum building and construction work and stuff. Oh, and I, I flew to my parents, bought some land in North Carolina. I built a house from the ground up. Me and a 65-year-old man when I was about 18. So that was another.
0: <laughs> so you kind of had projects back home that you would come back to.
1: Make money. Earn
0: a little bit of money. Yeah, come and then come back.
1: So then the second time, when I came back to California, I came to San Clemente. Okay. And then that's when I met, you know, people who were, serious board builders now I shaped a surfboard and my first board I ever shaped we took an old beat up longboard that was just junk and we took a grinder and grinded the rails down to Mm. the foam and peeled the glass off and got the blank out of the inside of it I went to a boat place to get resin and cloth and I didn't know anything about I never knew how they built them I knew I needed resin and cloth so what did I do I made a rack at my house and and I shaped it and laminated it and It was horrible. It was the ugliest thing you've ever seen. So,
0: what'd you use to shape it?
1: Did you sure form? You got a sure form. I think it was a sure form. Yeah, little grinders and hand saws and sandpaper. It was. It was not good. Plus, the blank was wrong in the first place. It's flat as a pancake. Where's the rocker come from? Didn't have any. So only rocker was in the bottom, so I didn't know the difference between laminating, hot coating, and glossing resin. So as I laminated this thing, I took it to the beach, all stoked. And I set it in the sand. That was a huge mistake.
0: It was not hard yet. No,
1: it won't get hard. Laminated resin always stays kind of tacky. I probably hmm. improperly poured the resin, not enough sure. catalyst. Sure. So it was super gooey, and <laughs> and the sand would not come off the bottom. And all that that'll so. There was a, I was in, involved in a South Florida surf club and they would, of this, of that surf club, they would choose the people that they wanted to represent the club and I surfed really well and I made a homemade surfboard and they, I, I was the youngest picked but it was between me and this older guy and they picked me and I was like, and what did I do? I showed up and rode my piece of crap board and ended up losing the entire contest against the other club because of me because i made a homemade surfboard (laughs) bummer but when i came out here and i was trying to find work i started a business cleaning apartments so me and my brother dave uh, ran around and we would what was cool about it we'd run into an apartment we'd vacuum the rugs shampoo them clean the bathrooms the showers and everything in the kitchens and if if it need repainting we'd paint them and then we got $4 an hour. So we were stoked. So we, uh, with that money, we'd run down to the beach and surf the rest of the day. Well, like we'd, and then we'd be out of work for a little bit, but we're surfing the whole time. And Wendell Udall owned 104 apartment house units. And then we were cleaning those, keeping them rented. And they, he worshiped us because we were gnarly workers. You Mm -hmm. know, uh, we were, (laughs) we got these jobs done. Like you couldn't believe. So, Wendell goes, you know what you boys need? I go, no, Wendell, what do we need? He goes, you need a house. And I went, why? I can just rent a house. And he goes, no, you need to own a house. He goes, I have a house. I'm going to sell it to you. He goes, I got a bunch of houses. And I said, okay, how much is it? He goes, $25,000. Four bedrooms, two blocks from the beach. And I went, I'm in on this one. And my brother goes, yeah, me too. So we gave him $1,000 down each. And we rented all the rooms in the house. In fact, Tom survey, I don't know if you know who he is. Yeah, He rented one of the rooms. He's from Florida. And my brother and his girlfriend and me and my girlfriend, and there was another person. Anyway, we had this hippie commune. And so everybody chipped in a dollar a day for food. Okay. So that we could, uh, but that was only for like rice and chicken and beans and stuff like that. And if you wanted ice cream or beer, <laughs> that was on you. Yeah. Which is kind of funny, right? But it gave us time to, to surf a lot.
0: How long did it take you to pay off that house? I mean, uh, he held the paper on it for you. Yeah. Okay.
1: So, so here's the funny thing. My brother decides to go to, um, San Luis Obispo and go to, uh, that school up there and become an architect or something. That's he, he, all of a sudden that came out of the blue. Well, I, I never even owned a checkbook till I was like 30 years old. I just cash and carry. That's how I rolled. And uh he goes, Yeah, I want to sell the house. Well, I wasn't at that time, I wasn't mature enough to really own the house. I should have just kept it. Yeah. So we sold it. We made five thousand dollars each and I ran out and bought a dirt bike. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean So what year did you sell it?
1: Uh, I bought it, and I think we bought it in '73, and we bought it, sold it in like '75.
0: Yeah, so making five k in two years. Oh, it's You just yeah, I was that, living large. Who wouldn't take that deal? Oh yeah, I'm winning. But what is that house valued at now? Three million dollars? Uh, no,
1: it's only like maybe a one point five or six. Oh okay. It's the storybook oh, houses nothing. in the in the north end of town okay. with the pointed roofs right by the movie theater. Gotcha. So they're kind of goofy houses, but. It, and it's not the best location, or any not like where I live now. <laughs> this is a little better, but uh, I should have kept it. But, yeah, but there hindsight. again, come on, it, it's and so I went to Rick work for Rick James, Rick James Surfboards, and he, uh, I was the I started polishing surfboards. That's only thing he would allow me to do. And I went to the Art Institute of Fort Lauderdale Beach, Florida, right out of high school at night. And I did one year of, of night school and I got introduced to the airbrush gun at that class. And so as soon as I used it, the teacher went, oh my God. He was like blown away with what I could do with it. He goes, I, I can't believe this. And I said, what's the big deal? Oh, it didn't seem like a big deal to me. I was already voted best artist in my senior year in high school. I was identified as an artist in first grade teachers would allow me to murals and not even do the other stuff. Wow. Cause they knew Billy wasn't right. <laughs> so they put me in the back room, I guess, to make me shut up. But when I came out to Rick James, I was, uh, brought my airbrush gun. So I started airbrushing surfboards. So once I started painting them, sanding them, polishing them, ding repair salesman, all that stuff at Rick James, that's, uh, I said, "Look, Ricky, I, I, I just I came here to shape. That's w- what I'm really here to do." And he goes, "Yeah, whatever, blah blah blah." And, and so I ended up moving to Hawaii for in 1976 on the North Shore, surf pipeline every day, and uh, I was going to live there. That was my. I shipped everything I owned over there, but the hatred and the anger and the fear of your life on a daily basis on the North Shore. I couldn't take that.
0: Really? No, no. Uh, because you were a Howley. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Way too white.
0: Was there any way
1: too blue eyes?
0: Was there any specific incident?
1: Oh yeah. All that the time. you'd care to share everywhere. Everywhere I went, you know, my dad told me real men, look a man in the eye and shake his hand. You do not do warning. Do not do that in Hawaii. If you look a guy in the eyes, it's time for beef. Mm. I didn't get that memo. So when I would stare at a Hawaiian, what you looking at? And I would, and then I'd look behind me like, are you talking to me? And then, you know, so the, yeah, in parking lots, just trying to park your car, you, some guy would run over and block you from a space. Um, out in the water, they would give me shit until they saw me surf. And then they would kind of like, oh, fucking Holly, you surf pretty good, huh? Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so kind of went down that road with it. So, Ricky calls me up and says, hey, man, if you come back, you can shape. So I came back, started shaping surfboards for Ricky, still doing the paintings and all that. And, you know, I, I, I've hand-shaped over 40,000 boards at this point, somewhere in there. I don't know how, maybe more, I don't know. Never really kept track of all that. I was just rowing the boat, trying to make money, make a living, right? Mm-hmm. So as I was working for Rick, he ran out of work. Then I worked to work for South Shore for about eight months up and off of Myford road. And then they kind of flopped. And then, well, while they were still in existence, Jerry Moe owned it. Then I got a phone call from Terry Martin. So Terry goes, Hey man, would you, you, we would really like to have you shaping boards here at Hobie. I went, cool. I'm in. And there was a whole bunch of shapers. They were doing a bunch of boards and they lined us up. It was eight shapers. They lined us up and said, Hey, we got this big order from Japan for 500 boards. Who wants to shape surfboards for $11? And I went, $11, right? I think we were making 15. A huge cut, right? And he goes, we bidded the job a little low, so we're going to have to pinch you guys a little bit for the money. I went, no, I'm out. So that's when I went to work for Hobie, when Terry called me. And uh, so I get there and start shaping and airbrushing the boards and doing all that stuff. There's a certain point in your life where you're too good to work for other people. Mm. And I think you got to learn that, you know, most people, 80% of the world probably works for a company of some sort. Are you an entrepreneurial person? Are you going to take the financial risk? Are you going to put all the chips on the table? It's a gutsy move, but you have to be confident in what you're doing. If you don't think you can do it, you probably can't do it. But I felt I was too good to be working for other people
0: it can easily be, I mean, there's so many people that are listening to this who just have too much ego and they're going to be like, Bill said I should do it. And they go out there and fall in their face, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, make sure you do your homework before yeah. you paddle out a pipeline. Don't think, don't think you can just go out and ride pipeline.
0: Well, what was your, um, what was your move? What was your thought? What were you better at? And what did you need to do on your own that Hobie couldn't allow you to do?
1: I've, I felt like I wanted to build my own brand. I wanted my own... As good as I was at what I... And, and I can scu- I could sit here and sculpt your face out of clay while we're talking. So I have a, a gnarly art eye. So when you look through my eyes and you see what I see, look at this room you're in. It's crazy, right? Yeah. So this is how my brain works. So I didn't think it was smart to work underneath somebody when I was that good at something. And I... I like experimentation, and that's not what they're looking for. They're looking for right. high production volume, yeah. and you really feel like a mule grinding wheat, walking around the racks. Big difference between invention, creations, and designs, which I love, versus mowing the lawn. And it, it it's that big of a separation.
0: Um, there's not a lot of people who can kind of uh, operate so efficiently in both the creative part of their brain and also the pragmatic part of the brain. And so you self-identifying as an artist, there's so many people who self-identify as artists who don't have a successful business Yes, acumen.
1: The starving artist.
0: Almost always, you know? <laughs> and so we were talking about my brother earlier yeah. <laughs> who's an illustrator. He works for Disney. Incredible talent. If I had 10% of his talent, I'd rule the world right now, you know? And if he had some of my kind of entrepreneurial business acumen, he'd rule the world right now, you know? We need to partner on something is ultimately what we need to do.
1: It's hard with family when you make that – I did that and it was a mistake. Okay. uh, Because the dynamics of your youth going into the – Who's the boss? Sure. So – with that when you think about the starving artist syndrome the hard part for me was the business side i hate spreadsheets and i don't read books i don't like books at all i always said why do why do people read books when you can watch television and that pissed people off the book's way better than the movie i go oh really did you see the hot chick in the book (laughs) (laughs) i saw her in the movie (laughs) i make jokes like that right and it drove people mental, but I kind of had a reading disorder. Like I got, I was I was put, I was identified as an artist in first grade and I was so proud of myself and they had me hold up my drawings and show everybody and, and people praised me for it, right? And then I got put in the slow reading group. Mm. Now I'm offended. I'm either all in <laughs> to win or you will never, if I don't like you, you'll really know it. I wear everything on my sleeve. I'm very black and white and and good and evil, black and white, whatever you want to call it. I really separate it that way. Yeah. But uh, the business side of business is not fun to me. You need to find a genius. Your brother, if he wants to go independent, he's got to find a genius partner, bean counter, accountant guy who has already structured a business yeah. and knows how to do it. Totally.
0: Well, that would be my concern when you're talking about being young and um, leaving Hobie. That's the concern is like, I know you're incredibly talented. You're obviously a hard worker. Running a business is different.
1: I know. I opened a a shop in Laguna Beach. My first surf shop was about as big as this space here. And it was teeny tiny. It was a joke. And it was right by Brook Street. And I, I opened that up not knowing anything about business, no idea. So my wife's in there selling, and I would sit out front and airbrush T-shirts and hats. I got super famous for those hats, all the airbrushed hats. And kids would sleep with them on and stuff. They were in love with them. And that's back a long, long time ago when I had team riders like Pat Allen, Mike Parsons, Chris Morrow. All those young kids were riding for me, riding my twin fins back in those days. But it, it was... Uh, the business side of running all that was a nightmare so i had to then my wife got pregnant and i said that's it we're shutting this down yeah i'm I'm over this so i went into a factory just i was shaped in the hobie factory then i opened up my own little factory and uh it was me by myself there was no other employees you'd walk in and bill stewart sitting at a desk and you go hey i'd like a whopper fries and a chocolate shake you know and i'd run back and make it wow so it was a it was hands-on doing everything by yourself
0: i didn't know better i didn't know how to run a company. right driftline.co the perfect holiday gift for anyone in your orbit who surfs the patented neoprene lined board short that keeps you comfortable with warmth compression and anti-chafing It's just a simple solution to a limitation that we had just learned to live with. The modern technical board short is so vastly superior to the stiff, scratchy board shorts of my youth, but concealing a half millimeter of neoprene within it is an improvement almost no matter where you're wearing your board short, certainly while you're surfing, but also fishing off a boat all day jet skiing wakeboarding lounging at the lake there is no downside the drifty is an improvement in the modern board short check it all out at driftline.co use our promo code which is the word spit and that'll save you 15 percent get drifties for anyone who spends any amount of time in board shorts throughout the year get them at driftline.co WaterwaysTravel.com is your one-stop travel concierge. Uh, I've been hearing feedback from listeners and friends that the South Pacific has been on. Matt Warshaw, who you heard here on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, is on Two right now. His good buddy who booked that trip booked it through Waterways, and um, it looks like they are scoring. It looks like some of the South American points have also been going off, too, in the last month or so. So whether you want to get there this weekend for a strike mission, or maybe you just want to map out your next family vacation and time it with the swell season a year from now, Waterways has you covered. No matter what level of luxury you want, for any level of surf proficiency, for any time of year, somewhere on the globe is always going off. And Waterways knows exactly where. They are the foremost experts since 1994, so nearly 30 years of partnerships at the best waves around the world and their customer service is unmatched. They are a small team. You will save time, you will save money, and you'll save potential hassles and hiccups. So don't go it alone. Utilize our friends at waterwaystravel.com. When you're hiring for a small business, you wanna find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. free that's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free terms and conditions apply let me back up just a tiny bit i want to hear more about learning how to shape surfboards who did you mentor under i mean did you work directly with terry
1: rick james was showed me how to do it okay uh the method i use for my by the way if you call up any other shapers and say how fast is bill stewart i'm really fast and really accurate at what i do uh terry martin i call it the martin method of how i shape based on his tools and his techniques i would give him 90% of the credit for my skills and what i become hand shaping boards got it terry was incredible really good guy and a uh, real phenomenal craftsman his, his work was spot on. I loved what he did. He's the kind of guy you give him the, here, I need this. You don't say, and don't forget this. And now you turn and walk out of the room. I had, when I, at my peak performance, we were doing 5,300 boards a year, and I had nine full-time shapers. And that was nuts. That was the worst time of my life. Was it really? Absolutely. Interesting. Horrible.
0: um, Was it the most profitable time of your life?
1: Until I was embezzled, and it was rape and pillage. And I was flying around the world. I went to Japan 20 times, France, England, Australia. I shaped all over the world. And while the cat's gone, the mice play. So Um, lost every dollar I ever made in 1996.
0: Did you really? Yeah. Um, were you able to legally pursue the culprit?
1: I tend not to be a litigator and to pin it on exactly on what that person did. You have to catch them with their hands in the cookie jar. Okay. It's the smoking gun. It's the fingerprints on the knife or whatever. right. Hard to prove that stuff. Mm. And when somebody's uh, manipulative enough, good enough and, is a professional soft con their whole life. They know what they're doing. They go in to do it. It's not an accidental thing.
0: So they got away with the money? Absolutely. Oh. Brutal.
1: I had four properties and I lost all three except for my house.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yep. That's horrendous. Yeah. Well... It's uh, like crashing a
1: 747. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I equate it to. Yeah.
0: Well, it's... Um, I don't know how much you want to go into that story or not, but I in my notes, I did want to ask you kind of about business missteps.
1: Always look. Here's the most important thing I can tell anybody that's listening to this. If you decide your brother or anybody else says, hey, I'm going to go into business, okay? Uh, you got to look at who the person is. What's their background? you you got you to look at it like you're going to marry this person because don't ever listen to anybody of what they say Look at their. I, I have my accomplishment list. You, you, you see these. See that bird right there? That's a trophy from second for second place. That toucan from Costa Rica. Okay. There it is. I got second place. I'm not telling you I got second place. That proves I got second place. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So these people come in and they're, oh, yeah, I'm this and I'm that. I've done, I, 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 I. and then you get into business with them and they go, oh. He failed here. He failed here. He burned this guy. He burned that right, guy. Right, right, There's a whole history of illegal, uh, dishonest, and bad behavior their entire life. Yeah, I mean, they don't wake up and be evil one day.
0: Right. Um, let's go back to coming off of that Laguna Beach shop because when I think of your brand, your brand is uh, was omnipresent for me in Southern California when I was discovering surfing. Oh, okay. Like I'd see your boards at- You're whether, at that age. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I. so I started surfing, I think it was maybe 93, 94. Okay. Um, so whether I was surfing LA, Orange County, San Clemente, San Diego, like I feel like your boards were everywhere. I'd see your ads in the magazines all the time. Right. Um, but it was also a brand, whereas there were certain board- companies that just made surfboards I feel like yours was kind of a larger scale clothing like you said hats there was kind of this larger thing that it was all the boards were wrapped up in yeah so I'm just curious when you were coming out of Laguna where you had that storefront what was your vision was your vision to have a clothing company was your vision to or was it just to build surfboards and all that stuff was just
1: that's a good really good that's a great question I'll tell you why because the type of person that I am, I didn't have this grand vision. So I was working in a little tiny shop on Las Molinas Street down there. We call it the alley of broken dreams, but <laughs> it's, it's, I'm down there working and, and Brian Clark, who is a friend of mine, he made BC surfboards and his, his father-in-law had this building in San Clemente and set him up in a full retail store. All of my customers were sent to him he made all the money on the leashes, the traction pads, and all. After a while, I went, oh, shit, man, i got to do something here. i got to open a store, right? So I was friends with Greg Arnett from Arnett Sunglasses. This is before Greg was Arnett Sunglasses. He had a little surf shop called Ocean Moves in Mission Viejo. He closed that, and he said, hey, let's go in together as partners. And I said, okay, good idea. And I was all in. So I went, okay, w- what do we want to do? Let's, so we drove all through San Clemente looking at uh, buildings. We saw a bank. We were thinking about opening in a bank. And and Greg had some money money because he was a motocross racer for Honda, sponsored rider, and then he worked for Honda for a while. So then we started find, looking at buildings, honing in, and I all of a sudden it's, I stopped and I went, I need to talk to somebody that has a business mind because that ain't me. So know your weaknesses. Okay. Know your weaknesses. And so I called up uh, the guy that had those apartments that I cleaned when I first got here and I said, Hey Wendell, I got this business deal I'm gonna do. Can I have a, a moment of your time? Come on over anytime. Walk in the door and he said, What you got cooking? He was a real energetic guy. What you got cooking? I said, Well, me and Greg Arnett are gonna open a big retail store and we're gonna have all this, that, and the other. He goes, Well, what is Greg gonna do for in the in the business? And I said, Well, he's got a different job. And he goes, well, what's he bringing to the table? Well, he's going to open it with $50,000. He goes, Bill, do you own a home? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, do you have equity? And I said, yeah. He goes, why do you need $50,000? You have equity in your home. And he said, yeah, but I might lose my house. He goes, Bill, when you came to San Clemente, what did you have? I go, nothing. He goes, how was that? I go, not that bad. He goes, there's your answer. So I called up Greg and said, Hey, Greg, no partner. And here's what Wendell Udall said to me, most valuable thing I've ever heard. The only ship that doesn't sail is a partnership. (laughs) And I went, Oh my God, he's right. Now, if Greg would have, now, Greg got mad at me for that. I would imagine. He got a little pissed. Because he
0: presented the idea.
1: Well, it was kind of, I was looking to, we were, I don't, yeah, I don't know if he started it. Maybe he did. Anyway, I said to him, Hey, Greg, I'm really sorry. I just, I'm, I'm going to do this on my own. Now, if Greg Arnett would have said, hey, Bill, let's open a chain of stores up and down the coast. I'll be the business side. I'll bring in the money, and you're the talent. You're this, and I'm this. We would have killed it. We would have simply killed it. And all that bad stuff that happened to me would have never happened. But him running off and going, so he got so pissed off that he ran off and started Arnett. He went to work for Oakley then created uh, net sunglasses and made 160 million.
0: Sold net to somebody. Yeah.
1: Um, so he did. He he's not suffering. Well, no, but <laughs> even
0: still, he could still hold a grudge. You know, he doesn't. You guys got over that. Yeah. Okay. Good.
1: Yeah. Pretty much. He's. I've known him from Florida. He's originally from where I'm from. Oh, I didn't know that. I surfed against him back in the day. So we had a. That's how we kind of knew each other from from surfing back east. And uh, funny that. We'd end up here yeah. and trying to form. I just wish he would have joined me, you know. I needed him. Yeah. I really did.
0: Sounds like though Wendell talked you out of what Greg's assets might have been in the partnership.
1: I don't think it would have been an asset because his all he was gonna do is hand me money and go this way.
0: The right. question is he was keep would he job. be a Yeah. yeah if
1: yeah. you're spread too thin, if he would have been all in on that deal, I would have jumped on it. But because of the way he was trying to structure it. I was going to be his slave. Yeah, yeah. I go to work. I shape 10 boards in a day, and I give him the money for half the boards I shaped. Right. I did the labor with these hands.
0: So did you get that store open?
1: It's the one I have now.
0: (laughs) What year did it open? Uh, 1985. Gotcha. So, I mean, that's an impressive run. Yeah. Yeah. Insane.
1: So now my daughter, Ashley Linus, and Eric Linus are... You know, and people might know that Linus name, that famous snowboard guys, him and his brother, uh, all over the magazines. And he jumped Chad's gap at a sixty miles an hour, one hundred and twenty feet, doing a five forty. Now that's that's gutsy. And he he goes, yeah, but you rode Pipeline. I go, that's not near as dangerous. What you? Do. So we've had arguments about who's dumber. <laughs> <laughs> but he's a sweet guy. He qualified to marry my daughter. He's now the owner of Stewart Surfboards. I sold it to them about three years ago, and I'm 72 years old, and I thought, okay, uh, good run. Good run. I had a great life. Got to surf all over the world, have a great time doing it, and I got to do what I love to do, and that's special. Not everybody gets that.
0: Back to uh, 85 and launching the store. Was the hub still surfboards?
1: Yes. Okay, gotcha. Always. It still is.
0: that's the the core of the question
1: i hated retail i didn't like clothes i still don't like clothes i mean it's a t-shirt it's a pair of shorts go to the beach go surf on a great board yeah just to me fashion and real surfing that just doesn't compare to me so my passion for art shapes and designs is important to me
0: when did you first start using the surf uh stewart surfboards name and and by the way logo and who designed the logo the was logo, that, was that in the mausoleum where you were ch- chiseling it in?
1: The, the thing is, I can design logos really, really fast and quick. That's actually my personal handwriting. I write like a girl. I have scrolly cursive writing. In fact, I can't spell if I print because the letters don't tie together.
0: Hmm. So you have to write cursive. Yeah. Interesting.
1: Isn't that weird? Yeah, it is. I mean, I can kind of spell, but if I write cursive, they, I know how they're artistically put together. So it's not like I'm memorizing the letters.
0: Fascinating.
1: Uh, it's, it's messed up.
0: <laughs> it's a <I> mean, disorder.
1: <laughs> it's a peel behind,
0: look behind the curtain, certainly. It kind of
1: is. You know. And I, I tell people you know, that, that there's, you see people that have a gift here, and they're horrible over yeah. here. Like talking on this microphone. This is easy for me. I, I'm not sweating. I'm not nervous. This is kind of fun. I like doing this. So I'm all in. But if you put me in a position, if you said, "Hey Bill, I want you to memorize this and and talk this, say what's on this piece of," I cannot do that. Mm -hmm. Couldn't do that on my best day. So it's it. As I told you, I move forward. I can't back up very easy. Right. That's memorizing stuff and backing up and going through that in your head. Yeah. Hard to do for me.
0: Uh, When did you first start using the name Stewart Surfboards? Nineteen
1: seventy. Well, oh. Yeah, 77, I have 76, something okay. like that. 78, I don't know, 76, I don't know. Okay. Somewhere in there. Um, but I used the name on other, like I signed when I shaped other people's boards prior to putting it on my boards. My company actually started in uh, 78, I think.
0: Okay, gotcha. But I want to get into board building a little bit. Okay. And your board building history. Obviously, in that era, 70s, I guess, was transition era, right? I mean, when you... You were started by shaping longboards and certainly the brands that you shaped under, they were longboards.
1: None. All short. They were all short. Everything was short. Even the Hobie days? Everything was short.
0: Really? Okay. Yeah.
1: So you gotta understand the history of surfing because when the long they weren't longboards, they were surfboards in the in the sixties. Right. And then nineteen sixty seven they went short. That's when I chopped that board down and made a shortboard out of a longboard. From there forward I was riding twin fins. My favorite board was a five six twin fin. And I was a professional, I surfed professionally on shortboard. Okay. Which people don't know that. I got eighth place in Oceanside with 120 people, and there was Sean Thompson and Larry Bertelman and all these people. And I got eighth place on a Hobie surfboard when I was shaping for them. I shaped it, painted it, ran down, and entered the contest.
0: What contest was that?
1: It was the ASP.
0: In Oceanside. Yeah. Interesting.
1: So... I quit surfing all contests for 12 years because it was kind of a hippie philosophy of don't be a sellout. And it's kind of a joke and nobody took it serious. Now the Australians took it very serious. Californians were so anti-contests. I kind of blew it to tell you the truth to identify my surfing ability. I wish I would have competed more, Mm. but I, you know, you have a business, you have a wife, you have two kids. It's really difficult to, it's an unfair playing field.
0: I mean, especially if you have to be chasing it around the world, that's it's almost impossible. You can't do it. Yeah.
1: That's the problem. Okay. So, and my age, if you go back in time, the wind, my window of time, if you flew to Hawaii, and won the pipe masters, you might've got enough money to pay your plane fare back. Right. There was no big money in any of that. No surfers were paid money. I was sponsored by companies. I mean, Hobie gave me free boards, Rick James. I was sponsored to go ride their boards for free, but, that's all I
0: got. Free surfboard, not yeah. the same as a paycheck. I uh, know, right? Um, so the boards that you started building under the Stewart label, then I was under the misconception. I th- I, I just thought of that era, and I thought longboards, and I thought high performance longboarding. That's what I'm famous for. Yeah,
1: and that's because I invented a whole bunch of things in the modern longboard. I I am the, I motivated everybody to come back to longboards. I we me and uh, Mike Beshen it was. He was the best man at my wedding, Shane's father. And when we ran a T Street surf contest and everybody dredged out these old longboards, and as I was riding them, I was like, and this is in the 70s, I was like, why are these boards so crappy? Why are they so slow? Why can't you hit the lift? Why does a shortboard go nuts and these things drag through the wall? Well, it's a sailboat displacement hull versus a hydroplane plane inefficient hull. That's the big difference. So that's when I go, okay, I'm gonna downrail these things. I'm gonna put three fins and I put the that's when I came up with the three and a quarter side fin sixteen inches up on that placement. And that's kind of the it's the standard of the industry worldwide.
0: So is that the Hydra hull design? Yeah,
1: the beveled the was the beveled rail, three concaves, concave in the nose, double concave tail, beveled rail, and the the six inch I started with a six inch back fin and little three and a quarter side fins. And in all the contests, there was a, a, the nose 360 was a big deal to do that trick. And me and two other guys or three other guys were really, really good at that. Backside 360s, front side ones. I'd do two on one wave and still hang 10. So it was cool as hell. And in fact, at the San Onofre Club surf contest, they complained that I was a professional surfer. I should not be allowed to surf in the event. So if you look at this picture, right there, see that picture of me hanging Mm. five? That is a blank. That is a 95s Clark blank, that has literally no shape. I routed the fins out and put fin boxes in it, and still won. Just the blank. Wow. Just funny, know. That's
0: incredible. Does it still have the? It still has the Clark spray on it and everything. (laughs) Yes. Unbelievable.
1: Isn't that funny? Yeah. So they put it in surfer extra and call it blank man that's my son he's he's 41 years old now that's him holding the the, the board yeah and so i did that as kind of a a stunt and also a handicap okay. i thought okay here's i'm handicapping right i like can golf they give you extra shots so that's what i did and i still won and then the board broke in half and then i ripped on the tail <laughs> Cause it was, it's not a longboard contest. It's surfing. Yeah. So I just started blasting every once in a while, the thing would skip and spray me in the face, you know, cause it was just squared off with no rocker. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's one of those funny things. And you know, all these Clark, you see all the OP ads I modeled in and back in the day and all that stuff. So it's, uh, I've been lucky. You so know?
0: the hydro hole design though, um, wasn't specific to longboard versus shortboard. It, it, short it was a shortboard. It was a shortboard. Okay. Yeah,
1: it was a six, I think it was a six, four shortboard. It's in the book, Essential Surfing. And it's a shortboard that initially I sh- designed all that on. The beveled uh, rail. Well, I was just thinking. The hydro those, is the beveled rail.
0: That's what I was thinking is those design elements could be applied to any size board though, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. The bigger the board, the better it works. Okay. And so uh, the whole there's a snowboard company that from battalion snowboard company showed up here and they said, Oh, we copied your beveled rail off your surfboards. And that's the company I did that. You don't know this, but see that snowboard hanging up there. Yeah. That's from 1981. Oh, wow. Okay, So we'll have to get into that someday. Yeah.
0: I know that you designed <laughs> a line of snowboards. I didn't know. Well, yeah. How and, that-
1: and there's wakeboards, snowboards, scurfers, all this different stuff. And uh, But the hydro hull set a standard. It was so far above everything out there at that time, it brought a whole bunch of baby boomers back into the sport. Because what happened was, as, as boards got too short for older, heavier, married men with children, right. <laughs> and they put on 50 pounds, then they're like, they quit surfing. So then when they saw a longboard going straight vertical and doing figure eight roundhouses... They went, holy crap, I want to do that. So they got, I, it resurged a whole group of people.
0: Yeah. Uh, was that the introduction of what we now know as the two plus one mm-hmm. fin setup? Yeah. Had you seen that anywhere else or was that? I don't
1: think so. I don't remember, but I've always messed with fins. I was, I'd take jigsaws and cut the back of my fin out. We called it squirreling out your skeg in the sixties. Okay. And That big D fins, we would just cut it. It would make a raked fin and foil them way better, and the board changed the dynamics of the board dramatically. So I've always, you know, messed with fins. I have a wing fin that I put a giant wing on, and uh, I still have it. It's here somewhere, Uh, and it held the tail down, and I won that 17-pound bronze trophy in Florida, hanging 10 the longest, Against Herbie Fletcher, David Nueva, and all the Dale Dobson, and I won three thousand dollars on a fin design.
0: I mean, kind of a precursor to the foil,
1: right? It's the reverse of a foil. The foil lifts, right? This pulled the tail down. I foiled it underneath, so it lit, it's a backwards wing to suck the. It, on an airplane, it would crash, but on a surfboard, it held the tail down. So, all these see. It's really, this is what people don't understand. People say, oh, he's a really good shaper. Really? What has he done? Not much. What does he replicate
0: other designs? Essentially.
1: Yeah. 90% of the shapers look over the fence. They haven't done or designed or created anything. Yeah. So in the, I'm the, I'm the co-inventor of future fin systems.
0: I had read that and, uh, I wasn't sure how accurate that was or did you have any legal tie to the company at all? Or how did that, all play out
1: they there's two brothers that own the company and the one brother got the boot and i the guy that uh that i worked with i made it a patentable product i came up with the idea i did all the prototyping i flew around the world and they they do not tell the truth about where that fin box comes from
0: tell me about how that all started what was the need that developed
1: Okay, it was through anger. <laughs> okay. I'm funny and tolerant, but when I'm pissed, I'm pissed. And Mel Ross in, did the official fin box. Do you remember that one? Official,
0: yeah, official. yeah, Official, yeah. it was yeah, yeah. hollow. Yep.
1: So I he copied my templates. He used my name in his advertising. I was involved with the box, the whole... But He kept saying, oh, yeah, yeah, see, this is the bad business part. This is where I should have had a business guy or a lawyer. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, I'll give you 10%, blah, blah, blah. Never did. I hand-carried routers and jigs and everything to Japan, England, France, all over the world to set that company up. Never gave me a dime, okay? So I was pissed. So I said, okay, I'm going to make a better box. So then that's when the guy showed up at my shop, and he goes – Hey man i heard you're working on a fin box he goes i'm working on one too and i we should join together huge mistake and there he so we sit down i do all the drawings there was a ramped up uh so official fin box had a plastic plug that locked into the box that was patented you can't do that okay so while we're sitting there i go first of all because i made all the boards and the people sitting in the room hadn't made that many i said the ra- all you got to do is ramp this thing up. You don't need a lid, put a piece of tape on. When you put the glass over the top, the sandpaper on the pad will burn through the glass and open the hole. And they go, will it? I said, absolutely. That's, what, that's called a burn through. That's what you don't want to do when you're sanding the surfboard, except for when you have a piece of tape over at the top of it. And I said, this radius, you won't have to, Mel Ross's was cut and it had to fill in the bubbles around the sides I said, see all those bubbles They won't even form. This is this is the way to go. That was patentable. Gotcha. So then I came up with the set screw in the thing. I have all the original drawings. I flew around the world. I got paid by product so that the company would survive because they financially di- weren't they weren't able to.
0: So you'd use the product in all the Stewart surfboards. All of them. Gotcha.
1: And I, the original. Oh, here's the real kicker in the official fin box it's two part and it had a, a hollow core which was kind of bad because it was a weak and a black one would swell up and you couldn't get your fin in it in the tropics right so they pulled the bottom of the box off and i said here it is right here it's already made all you have to do and i said let's make it a little shorter on the base so the official fins won't fit in this box and we can't say we copied it yeah right and then i had the set screw mel's was a Pressure fitted, pressure in, pressure out. Mm. So when your leash wrapped around the box, back of the fin, it would fly out. Yeah, you're in, there. You're on in Indonesia surfing Uluwatu, and the leash yanks your fin out. Now you're screwed, right? Yeah. So then, uh, as this went along, I was never told. My name was not put on the on the uh, trademark, and, and patented. It wasn't on the patent they left my name off for good reason. Yeah, And so they were gonna call it the Stuart Box. They said, let's call it the Stuart Box. I said, "Eh, that's kind of a bad idea, and here's why. This is a bad idea because we want Rusty and Al Merrick and everybody to use this Fin Box. Let's let's call it something else, so we came up with Future. So this is one of those stories where cross the T's, dot the I's, make sure these people you bring into your world it's amazing. It, it's, I guess it's my own fault.
0: It's I mean, a lack of due diligence, certainly. Yeah. But, I mean, to be honest, I mean, we had a conversation off air about Gordon Clark as well. Yeah. And I feel like at that time, things were so small, the pie was only so big. And it was kind of like, he's doing blanks, you're doing surfboards, they're doing fins. We can all make a living doing what we're doing. They Nobody had the foresight to anticipate how many units would ultimately be sold. Down no. the road. You don't know. So it's kind of like a handshake. Oh, no, yeah, we're friends and we'll all m- Rising have... tide buoys all the ships, right? But then once you're selling millions of units of something and a oh, dollar yeah. per unit ends up being millions of dollars, yes. then you look back and you go, wait a second.
1: <laughs> well, they've even, the orig- the short board, the, the side bites that they're using to sell are my template and you're paying other people for templates. So, the back box, then I came out with a strong box and I put rocker in the box to follow the, the, the rocker of the longboard. And so they manufactured that and now they've stopped paying me. And I'm, and I'm these are two separate contracts. Mm. Now, I'm sure I could take these guys to court and win, but there again, you're in litigation. You know how that goes. Do you even want to do it? Is it worth the, yeah. the headache at, at 72 years old? Right. But they know that. They're yeah. playing that card.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm curious, then, just on a personal level, is there ever do you ever feel like you can um, let bygones be bygones and um, have a friendship with somebody after something like that goes that south?
1: No, absolutely not. At
0: seventy-two, I'm just curious. No, yeah, no, okay. no.
1: Well, well, let, let's look at the damage to your life, yeah, and the and the, the frustration and the anxiety from all that kind of stuff when you're in those kind of wars with people, they're just not truthful and honest about it. And if you called his brother, his brother would, if he was sitting here, he would just lay into it and tell, it would be worth the story, I'll tell you that, because what he has to say about what, and it would probably have to be after the litigation crap's over. But you're talking about, that company went from my design concepts to $12 million, and I get nothing for it at this point. I did get paid in product, for the over the years but it was nothing near what I what I brought to the table right. and the the original prototypes that were produced were inset in my personal boards for my team writers and they the screws rusted they put the wrong side I, all these problems were at my expense we had to route thin boxes out and all this kind of stuff yeah it's a nightmare
0: a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me but i don't understand. I ever candid bill stewart ladies and gentlemen next week as we wrap up part two of this conversation you'll be hearing about his relationship with phil edwards gordon clark his good friend jimmy buffett and much much more surfsplendorpodcast.com is where you go to see everything that bill and i discussed you can also find uh, links to our sponsor affiliates with promo codes or you can see how to sign up to support our work for a mere $5 a month. That is the foundation of our business. And if you do that, we will in turn send you a ad-free listening experience, an ad-free feed that you can subscribe to to get the shows clean without ads, but still come to our website and benefit from those discounts and promo codes. Find it all on surfsplendorpodcast.com. You can also see our suite of other shows. We have six other shows in production monthly, uh, three of them are actually in production weekly, and that is of course this show Surf Splendor. And then I record a news-style show with my co-host Scott Bass that is called Spit, and then a gossipy behind-the-scenes industry show called The Grit with Chaz Smith. Find all that in any podcast app on YouTube or, of course, on SurfSplendor.com. And don't forget to share these shows with friends. That helps us grow organically and allows us to increase frequency of production and reinvest in the quality of the content. Thank you very much. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. And until next week, I hope that you are scoring wherever you are in the world. And I'm encouraging you take a break from all of life's busyness, get back into the ocean, share some waves, and as always, shred on. My light in the dawn.